Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and we are live virtually. We are each in our own homes, but we are connected via the miracle known as the internet. I'm C.R. Wiley, and I'm a pastor. I serve a church in Battlefront. Well, actually, it's in Vancouver, Washington, Westminster Presbyterian Church, great church. Uh, but I'm actually in Connecticut right now at uh, our vacation home and uh, just enjoying the snow. It's still snow on the ground outside. Anyway, I've written a book. Uh, I've written a few books, but the most recent book is in the house of Tom Bombadil, and it's uh, being well-received, and I'm glad to know that. Anyway, enough about me. Let's go around the horn. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and uh, I'm doing a lot of writing these days. All right. And then Tom. Ah, Tom Price. Uh, I teach systematic theology, uh, philosophy, uh, Christian ethics, um, and a variety of other things. Even guitar once in a while, though not so much anymore. <laughs> and uh, but uh, I teach uh, at a you know a variety of universities and uh, also Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. I'm writing uh, a, a, a kind of primer on Christian theology and ethics. Um, and then also something on uh, the engaging um, some of the idols of our age. So, and I got a lot of other writing ideas kind of underway. Um, but with that said, I think that's enough. I'm in Connecticut where Chris is, but we have not as of yet bumped into each other. And hopefully we will, but if not, uh, we will at some point. <laughs> That's right. Well, I do get back here pretty often. Hey, uh, we should probably let folks know about a couple of things that we're, we're working on for the new year. We're, we're pretty excited about. One is, is we are going to have more guests, more guests on the podcast. And uh, we're, we're going to, you know, let you know about those folks when we get things firmed up. But we've had a number of suggestions for guests and we're in touch with people. And so we're excited about that. Another thing is uh, we are planning to have another tour and we're looking to do this the new tour probably in the fall and and in the southeast and if you're uh in the southeast and you would like to host one of the gatherings one of the broadcasts for the for the podcast let us know and uh, we'll try to make that happen then the last thing is next week we're going to have a semi-live show now what do i mean by semi-live well i'm going to be in huntsville alabama down there by Jet Propulsion Laboratories and NASA and all those cool engineering dudes. And uh, there's a church there, Trinity Reformed Church, which is uh, uh, a real friend of the, of the podcast. And there's, they're sponsoring a show uh, at Fractal Brewing on Thursday, uh, January 20th. So this show will post on Monday of that week. And so uh, hopefully, if you hear about this on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, or even Thursday, you can come out to Fractal, Fractal Brewing, at se- and, and we're going to have a show, live show, at, uh, beginning at 7.30 there. I will be present, and we will have the talking heads of Tom and Glenn with their own dedicated <laughs> monitors right there <laughs> ne- next to me. And so we'll have a show, and it'll be, uh, I, it'll be Glenn's Week. So Glenn will let us know, I'm sure, before we show up, what we're talking about. Maybe I'll like, think about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> right. Sometimes, that, sometimes that's exactly how it works. We don't know how it's going. <laughs> but anyway, speaking of the, of the topic of the day, Tom, Tom, it's your day. Uh, tell us what we're talking about. Okay. Well, as, as usual, uh, the topic is going to kind of uh, – jump right into themes that I've been discussing before and trying to elaborate on them a bit more. I often get questions, I think, when we do, well, not, I don't think, I mean, I, I, I'm very aware of when we um, go to different conferences or we did our little tour, um, people continuously come up and say, you know, um, you know, look, some of the themes you brought up, especially in relationship to metaphysics, or, or the kind of the big picture questions. Um, I need some sources to kind of fill in the gap. I teach students or I'm teaching people. I don't know where to go. And oftentimes, you know, I'll get, you know, 
people write me and send me emails asking the same question, you know, where do I go to fill in more of this? And I mean, I could point to places, but they would be places people wouldn't particularly like because evangelicals and reformed and the like haven't been thinking about these issues for a long time. Or if they have, they've been thinking about them in, in a very wrong way, one very inconsistent with Christianity since its start. Um, and so because of that, I'm not saying everyone, but I'm, I'm saying predominantly because of that, there's a lack of, of resources and sources that actually um, develop these things or, or provide an introduction to them from, from our, our side of the, of the theological planet. And uh, I realize more and more that other than just kind of pointing to people and to sources that they're going to have to kind of wean the good from the bad, you know, because others are writing about it, um, um, we need to really produce some sources that will help people navigate. And so one of these, um, go ahead. Before, before you go any, far, go any farther there, Tom, I think it's really good to reflect just briefly on a phenomenon that I think a lot of people have noted and have wondered what's going on. And that is uh, when they see people who do a deep dive on uh, sort of a classical Christianity and, they, and, and in, a, in a year or two they uh, cross the Tiber and they declare, I'm a Catholic now. Or they, <laughs> yeah. they, go, you know, they, go, to, they go to orthodoxy. And, yeah, and people yeah. wonder, why is this? Well, I think you've brought the point. I, I think you've addressed it. The reason is, is because good Reformed theologians uh, have not helped people get in touch with the common, this is important, the common sources that Christians share in the patristics and so forth. So uh, when we talk about metaphysics and so forth, we're not talking, we're not introducing something to Christianity that's, that's uh, utterly alien and, and has never been, you know, thought about by believers. I, you look at the, uh, you know, the first five centuries, four or five centuries of the church, this is what they, what everybody was exploring, you know, what is the nature of reality? How do we understand how we relate to God in, in terms of the created order and, and these kinds of things? So I think you've got a really good point there, Tom. I think we need more reformed people uh, helping us to get in touch with what you're talking about. Now, some people that I that I know who are doing a pretty good job are the Davenant people. You know, they're yes. trying to do that. Yeah. Uh, but we need more. Yeah. Yeah. And I would add that we a lot of what we have seen has been completely unhelpful. <laughs> um, so if particularly in the reformed camp, you have a, a real allergy, uh, largely through the Dewey Weridian, uh, Francis Schaeffer kind of line to anything that even suggests platonic thought. Um, you know, the idea is that Platonism is antithetical to biblical Christianity uh, any hint of Platonism, and you're essentially a Gnostic, and so on. Um, and this, despite the fact that that these guys also really like Saint Augustine. So um, I, I think that this uh, this tendency to throw Platonism under the bus, as if it's a real, you know, it's a problem. You know, all of us are uh, are frankly Christian Platonists, and. It's been completely unhelpful the way the position has been caricatured uh, within the reformed camp. Right. Anyway, so I think I think we've got a few good comments there, Tom, to work with. But go ahead and throw us into the yep. deep end of the pool here. What are we talking about? Okay. So what I want to talk about is the, this this whole notion about the way in which we talk about God. I mean, we've talked about this before, language and its relationship to reality. We've talked about the nature of language in other episodes, but we haven't really, we've referenced kind of the way we should talk about God and the way God is talked about and the way, uh, you know, human language's capacity or incapacity to reference the God um, that we worship Um you know, we've we, we've kind of hinted around at, at things, but we've never really specifically unpacked what the church has held for long periods of time and then kind of deviations from that. 
Um, and, and so, I mean, we've talked about positive and negative language in relationship to God, which is something I'd like to get back into. But I mean, my reason for bringing this up is I still see over and over and over again, this kind of, um, this confusion that develops with a lot of Christians that know that on the one hand, they know God is utterly distinct from anything creaturely because God is the creator of all things, not one more thing created. On the other hand, and, and they, so they recognize the commandment that, you know, there is no you know, creaturely likeness or form that is able to circumscribe God, right? Um, but on the other hand, they know that the only language we have is human language. Look at the Bible. I mean, it, if, you know, look, it's, a, it's not just human language. It's a particularly distinct human language, Hebrew in one sense, you know, and Greek in the other. Um, so, so here we go with, with something that already kind of introduces a little bit of the problem that theologians had to work with is how do we reference God that transcends all things, is the source of all things, um, when the only resources we have are the familiar creaturely parts of the furniture of 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 creatureliness, the universe, right? So we have only creaturely terms. We only have creaturely language. Um, but on the other hand, and, and that's all we have to talk of God, but if we begin to talk about God through that language, we end up, don't we, inevitably starting to, to uh, basically put God in the dock, if you will, of our conceptuality and, and our creatureliness. Um, and, and right now, I don't want to move in the direction of Calvin and God lisping to us. I'll, I'll get to that in a little bit. But what I want to do is talk about the way in which um, language can have the capacity to reference God when you understand the biblical view of reality the right way. And you can, you can do it without becoming an idolater when you understand the biblical reality vision the right way. When you don't understand it the right way, you basically create God in the image of us but writ large, and you create the conditions for what we have in the modern world as modern atheism. So those are some big claims. <laughs> I will also yeah. say that the Christian view of freedom classically understood from Scripture and its reality vision carved out by the church for a long time, when it was rejected, created the conditions to an alternative conception of the human and freedom, which has led to a kind of libertarian view that we are the source of our own choices, the generator of our choices, and therefore the generator of all meaning and being for, for ourselves. So that's a lot of metaphysical talk already, so I'll leave it there and let you guys run with it first. <laughs> sure. Well, on the second point that you made, um, we've, we, uh, I think for the longest time, uh, had a kind of um, – well, break that was uh, exercised that, uh, you know, kept people from going into nuttiness, the kind of nuttiness that we see around us today. There was still a kind of, I guess, moral ethos in the air that uh, encouraged people, sometimes really strongly uh, encouraged them to just accept reality as as it's uh uh, experienced, for example, okay, you're a man, you're a woman. That's just the way it is. It, yeah. Your choices uh, uh, follow this, yeah. but this is beyond the realm of choice. <laughs> but yeah. as we know today, that's not the case any longer. Uh, that that no longer uh, uh, is per perceived to be uh, legitimate because everything, in terms of our language, t is understood to be merely uh, an exercise of power and no real true references are possible. So uh, that means that, you know, uh, when I, when I say uh, you're a woman, I'm in some sense imposing something upon you unless you say first I'm a woman. And of course there doesn't have to be any corresponding biological reality that exists as a point of reference. It's just 
you know, what you wish and then what I affirm or what I wish and impose. And, and that's kind of it. Um, so freedom uh, in this sort of radical sense uh, is something that's uh, was, I think, inconceivable just even 20, 30 years ago. Now, now some people, you know, sort of lo- sort of intuited this is where the logic leads. And, you know, you had people like C.S. Lewis and Abolition of Man who who had, you know, yeah. got into that. And there are, but he's he's just one of many. Um, but anyway, just to kind of underscore your point. Well, and I and I think that I mean, you know, you could say that we're you know we're we're just receiving kind of the the the, the kind of consequences of ideas you know that were were shifted and shaped thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth century. I mean, by you know, I've talked about this in other episodes by shifting the conception of God and the relation of all things to God to a different conception, you create the conditions for this kind of thing, which we see. Uh, more exacerbated, you know, more recently with 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 just everyday language being unmoored from any kind of um, intelligible connectedness to 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 reality, um, natural reality, much less larger reality, um, and that's I think a byproduct of the fruit. Um, um, you know, we've even seen it. I mean, I, I think all the way back into the '60s, and then the issues with the abortion, it, with the Supreme Court. I mean, we've seen Supreme Court justices basically affirm a nihilistic interpretation of the human being based on being the ground, and center, and end of their own decisions and choices to determine what is good and bad, right and wrong, um, and everything else. I mean, one could say the real origin of that kind of thinking, that libertarianism that that basically grounds reality for ourselves, is all the way back in the garden when it says, you will know right and wrong, right? You'll be the measure of all things. Um, it, it, it's a reiteration of that continuous satanic theme that's why I don't kind of run. I know I know there are some conservatives and even conservative Christians that like the libertarian kind of line of thought that, that kind of, you know, the liberality given to us in Christ. But I don't think that kind of metaphysic that 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 underwrites what we're talking about um, is helpful um, in any way whatsoever. But let, I'll get to this point maybe, uh, you know, down the road a bit. Glenn, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah. Yeah. There, there are two things that are, that, uh, come to my mind. I'll do the first. Now the other one I suspect is going to come up again later. Um, but this is also, you know, with, with respect to God, uh, this brings us back to a conversation we had quite a while ago on the via negativa. Um, the via negativa, the negative way, um, was a route that was used Really, it's at the heart of a lot of Christian mysticism in which it um, looked at the way human language failed when it came to describing God. Mm-hmm. Um, because so, for example, you know, the, the best example I, I came across is to say God exists is true in one sense. But the via negativa would be to look at that and say, well, how isn't it true? And it isn't true because our entire understanding of existence is creaturely and contingent, and God is creator and necessary. And therefore, when we think about existence, we can only do it in those terms, creaturely, finite, contingent. And so to say God exists is, in a sense, misleading because our concept of existence utterly falls short of the type of existence, the quality of existence that God has. Yeah. So the via negativa focused around probing those particular kinds of points as a way of trying to explore God as mystery. Right. Yeah, I think uh, this is a theme that, of course, Tom has addressed many times, but it's something that's on my mind right now because I'm working with uh, Pascal's wager. <laughs> so, you know, Pascal, he... he uh, you know, we owe him, you know a lot to, to Pascal. He was one of the fathers of probability theory. Uh, he helped us, uh, you know, with regard to the 
uh, you know, question, is a vacuum possible um, in the, the physical order of things? Um, so, but, but I guess the thing that intrigues me, of course, about the wager is the wa- wager is sometimes used as a, uh, or it's, it's understood to be a, a proof for the existence of God, which it's not even on Pascal's, if you read what he says, he's not talking about that. He's talking about the fact that you have to make a bet one way or the other. But even within the framework of that, of that uh, thought that he has in Ponce, you know, it, he's presupposing some things about existence that makes sense within a framework that he's operating in. And uh, I, I can't help but think that there's a, a number of modern assumptions about language and reality and so forth that are, that are uh, sort of presupposed in the, the, the wager itself. I won't, yeah. I, I won't go down that rabbit trail, but it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Yeah. I want to encourage you, if you're going to do that, make sure you read the wager all the way through to the end. Most people stop short. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, uh, I'll do that. I know it's uh, not as uh, short as has often been presented. So let me send you what I have and you can tell <laughs> me whether or not there's more that I should be reading. Okay. <laughs> Well, with, with all this richness, which gives everyone enough motivation to go out and get Pascal's wager and read Pascal, um, um, both with a, an openness towards someone trying to reflect on things divine and the critical apparatus of a robust Christian orthodoxy, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, but what I want to do is kind of talk about the kind of um, the the alternative big picture views that that we can we we actually have on offer um, in terms of Christianity, um, whether we're going to hold to a kind of strongly continuous Christianity with with the Christianity carved out by those informed by the scriptures across time, or whether we're going to kind of run with innovations that happened um, that kind of departed from that that um, kind of classic orthodoxy. Um, even though it expressed itself as orthodox. So what I would like to say in, in kind of a, a, another way would be a lot of what poses itself as orthodox Christianity, especially in evangelical circles, are modernist inner, uh, innovations um, that really in, in many ways create the conditions for the kind of Richard Dawkins in the world um, and and the you know the Chris Hitchens, but you know the, those kind of figures. Sam, what is the other guy's name? Sam, Sam Harris. Dan Harris. Yeah, Dan, Danny Dennett. You know, there's a there's a few of those guys. Yeah, that's um, why we, we need to we need to insist that we call him Danny. Danny, <laughs> Danny boy. <laughs> that's my Irish side talking, <laughs> which it's not really an Irish song, right? <laughs> um. So, so, um, so yeah, what I want to do is, I mean, if we're talking in the academic world, I would tend to talk about classical Christian visions versus what has now been, been termed onto theology, right? Onto theology, in my view, um, if, if I'm going to adopt the term, um, is something that is radically different than the way Christians thought about God, talked about God, all the way up into about the time of the 13th, 14th, 15th century. Now, I have to okay, throw you're some... Have to define, you got to yeah, define what ontotheology is because I haven't heard that one yet. Yeah, well, ontotheology is fr- more, it comes more out of the philosophical world, especially with like figures like uh, Heidegger. Heidegger basically um, only would would um well heidegger wanted to develop a view of reality that retrieved a full vision of what being is and god is and all the like because he felt like what christianity offered in his way of understanding it was basically God as, as, as kind of the biggest thing around kind of stuff. So the infinite is just quantitatively bigger than the finite. You know, we're in the same order of things. It's just bigger in the same stretch of things. 
And I'll get, I'll unpack that a bit, bit in a minute. But we don't need to call it, we don't need to call it ontotheology. We could call it univocal theology, where I'm going to unpack what that means and explain what it means in a minute. Or I, I kind of use, I, I'm okay with the term similarity thesis, right? Um, that God and humans are basically similar. You know, um, God's just bigger in the same order of, you know, things. And I've talked about this a lot, but I want to unpack it in terms of how it kind of penetrates the issue of language, talk of God, scripture, revelation, um, and then move into the way we talk about human freedom and things like that. Yeah, before you go there, uh, Tom, I want to just say something parenthetically, and that is what seems like uh, an, an ab- ab- abstruse subject is actually yeah. something that we see in popular culture uh, in different places. So, you know, Philip Pullman and, and his, uh, his Dark Materials uh, fantasy series, uh, he's actually uh, denying the existence of the univocal God that you're criticizing, but yes. he's uh, claiming that that is the only God who's ever been understood to be God. Another place where you see this is in all places, Star Trek. Uh, <laughs> the, w- one, of the, one of the films, um, you may recall, uh, takes uh, the Enterprise to the edge of the universe and they encounter a being who claims to be God. And then, <laughs> you know, William Shatner gets into a very... Uh, for him, uh, deep conversation. <laughs> it wasn't a terribly deep conversation, but but uh, but if uh, essentially it was a kind of it was a kind of new atheist's uh, re- refutation of the existence of God, but not the God that was the God of uh, Augustine or Aquinas, mm-hmm. not the God uh, that the you know, the, 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 you know, the patristics, the fathers, the church fathers were talking about. It was That's a different right. God. So yeah. even at the level of popular culture, uh, we see a parody of God that's based on certain th- theological errors. And so that's, that's what right. I just wanted to throw that in so that people might say, oh, okay, now I see why this is relevant, you know. Yeah, I would also add that um, this is essentially a resurrection of old paganism. Yeah. You know, this is the Greco-Roman worldview that everything exists on a hierarchy from God or the gods down to dirt. Yeah. Um, which is why you find so many Greek myths and Roman myths where one thing is being transformed into something else. It's because they're all basically the same stuff. You're just yeah. moving up or down on this, this chain. Um, and God's at the top of it and inanimate dirt, like I said, inanimate matters on the bottom. It's essentially a pagan worldview. Exactly. And so what one could say, um, theologically speaking, is that we're dealing with two distinct ontologies. One ontology that that underwrites and expresses biblical orthodoxy, and one that seems like it does, but it actually deviates radically from it and returns exactly to, as Glenn said, a certain pagan notion. We've talked about this before. I don't, I don't want to go all long into it. But let's just say that those two different ontologies, what do I mean by ontology for those who don't use that term regularly but can use it tonight at dinner after they listen to the show? Um, ontologies just have to do with being, you know, the study of being and the, the expression of what kind of things are there, what kind of beings are there. Ontos, being, the study of being, and then um, two different ontologies would refer to two different ways of understanding being, right? Um, now, the Bible is not simply an ontology. It unfolds redemptive history. But that redemptive history assumes tacitly within it a certain ontology, a certain understanding of God, the being that God is, a certain understanding of creatures, the being that creatures have. That's the most fundamental reality that determines all the rest. If you're going to understand God's agency and human agency, you must understand something about what it means for God to be God and the human to be human, right? Otherwise, the rest of the story doesn't make sense. If you have a different ontology than the one the Bible assumes, 
then all of a sudden you're reading God and the creature from a different understanding of what it means to be God and what it means to be a creature. Yeah, yeah. There are places in Scripture where the the, the tacit does uh, work its way up to the surface. That's right. Obviously, Exodus chapter 3, when yeah. Moses asked the question, who shall I say sent me? And, and God you know, says, tell them I am. Now, uh, what you mean by I am there is, uh, or what, what Christians and Jews have understood to mean by I am there is not, uh, you know, just uh, the, the bigger God or the bigger being than you, but, but <laughs> actually the very, the very uh, 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 sort of conditions, the condition for the being of anything else. That's so, right. Yeah, Chris. Yeah. As, a quick, a quick note on the Greek there. If you read the Septuagint, this gets really interesting. Uh, I got caught on this on a discussion with somebody once. Um, th- the Greek for "I am" is "ego eimi." Okay, that's that's where you see you know when Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the light." You know, or what? It, which all the "I am" statements all begin with "ego eimi," and when you go to the Septuagint, God says, "I am what I am." Therefore, say, it doesn't say, I am sent me in Greek. It says, ha'on. Ha'on is actually the root word for ontology. It means being. Right. That's right. It's a participle, being. Right, right. So being itself sent you. Right, right. And interestingly... Most of Christianity prior to the Reformation uh, took the Septuagint and its interpretation mm-hmm. is authoritative. So that, that, right. that introduces a whole other set of things. But it's not to say that the other isn't significant. It's just to say that the Septuagint isn't insignificant. Um, right. um, and, and, and so, um, you know, I, I, yes, you, you're, exactly, you're exactly right. So what, but interestingly, you make that point, Chris and Glenn. Because that becomes really one of the distinguishing marks of the distinctly Christian, Judeo-Christian ontology, understanding of God's being, which distinguishes it from all others. Here you have being, which, you know, um, the whole Greco-philosophical world would know how to make sense of because they studied it. They, you know, Parmenides, Heraclitus and all this connected to something that is really distinct about Christianity. It's called the metaphysics, if you will, the reality of divine naming, right? Divine names. This this is huge, right? Because here you have God's self-naming related to a, 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 a understanding of being. God's name and being are connected in a distinct way. References to God and the reality of God are united in a distinct way. Yahweh, of course, is the most sacred name of God, kind of setting forth the being of God as it is named amongst creatures. I mean, that's one of the things we get there. Why is it holy, holy, holy? Why are we to not let the name of God fall among the idols? Is because the sacredness of divine naming. Divine naming... And the things we tend to think about, the attributes of God, they were different, classically understood, they were different ways of naming God. They were different names for God, God's one simple essence. God is all that he has, I amness, right? Um, So basically, when we talk about the divine attributes in the classic Christian vision of things, we're not talking about different things that some substance called God participates in. There, we're talking about what is essential to the nature of the one God. So when we say God's name is I am, we're using a name to reference the very being that God is. God is being itself, as Glenn just said. God, when we say God is good, we're not saying that God participates in goodness the same way Chris is good at drawing, right? We're saying God is goodness itself, 
we're, it's a name for God, where for us, we, we share in that name in some way or another by the kind of creature we are. God is what God has. Those attributes are names for the one essence of God understood from a whole plurality of different perspectives, being, existence, goodness, power, whatever. God is what he has. So God is power itself. God is being itself. God is the source of all those things for everything else, but he is those things in a perfect, simple unity. Yeah, I think that um, one of the challenges that I've, uh, you know, wrestled with in terms of trying to help people see what you're talking about uh, as it relates to our, our lives in the world is how is it possible for people to, in some sense, participate in these, these attributes without uh, being um, properly related to God through Christ. So, for example, yeah. if a person, you know, a, a good example would be, okay, uh, somebody uh, is good in one respect, but is fallen and sinful in another respect. Let's say, you know, you, you know somebody who doesn't know Christ, hasn't trusted in uh, mm-hmm. you know, him for uh, salvation, but as a good builder, yeah, he's honest, uh, he does the best he can, he's, he's, he doesn't cut corners, uh, he tries to make sure he, that everything is uh, transparent in terms of his billing. He, he's a good builder. How is it possible for a person to be a good builder in you know, uh, the sense that goodness ha- has its origin in God and and to whatever degree we are good, it's because we're participating in some sense in goodness as it proceeds from God, and at the same time, not be saved. <laughs> yeah. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah. C.S. Lewis said something to the effect, I don't remember the exact quote, but it, it was something along the lines of, the fact that we're made in the image of God means that uh, the unbeliever isn't as bad as they could be. The fact that we are fallen, the fact of original sin, means the believer isn't as good as they should be. Well, I've had plenty of proof for the second point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but I but I guess but I get getting back to the language of participation, though, because yeah. in some sense, the good builder is participating in God. In some mm-hmm. sense, I mean, even yeah. Paul in you know at, in, in Acts says, "We live and move and have our being in Him." He's talking about everybody in the room. He's not yeah. saying. Uh, there are people here who live and move and have their being in God, and that's uh, yeah. those of us in the room who believe in Christ. You know, he's saying yeah. everybody in the room, you know, in that, some sense participates in God. Yeah, and I would argue that that is rooted at least in part in the image of God, which is why I brought up the Lewis quote. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I would, I would agree everything both of you just said. I mean, I think what I, how I would qualify the difference. I mean, on the one hand, God's goodness is such that the, the, the good, you know, the goodness falls on the good and the bad. That's, that's because of who God is, not because of who we are. In other words, God, God's indifference, or, or let me put it a different way, God's not being impacted one way or the other by our positive or negative relationship to him means God is fully good towards us, whether or not we're good or bad towards him, right? Um, because God isn't conditioned by us, but we're conditioned by him, right? So this is a cutting off on, on our own end. In other words, we may be a great builder, but we are not building on the foundation of Christ that is for an eternity. We're building for only a, a temporal project, if you will. Um, so, you know, someone may be a great yeah. architect and it may stand across time, but it is not built on the chief cornerstone, which is building an eternal temple for the dwelling presence of God to to commune with the gifts and goodness of, of creation. Yeah, I think this is one of the ways that uh, uh, Reformed theology has been really helpful uh, yeah. with the doctrine of common grace. Um, yeah. You know, it's not as though um, people are uh, good uh, on their own terms or by their own merits or by, through their own efforts uh, it's because, in some sense, they're participating in common grace, something that's, that's right. been extended to them, as you as you noted, Tom. 
Well, that that's right. And and I think I mean I think one of the things that unpacks it, and you know, I, I've I've said it different weeks and over and over again, but I think by getting getting the distinction between what God is and what we are correct, it helps us to kind of start understanding the kind of plane on which human action takes place the right way. Therefore, what human freedom and creativity and and participation in God, sin and its distortion, and then redemption looks like. I mean, the plane of human history is the plane on which redemptive history takes place, right? It's not up in the being of God, but down in so-called, you know, the context of, 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 of humanity. Um, and I don't want to go through all of what I've built on other episodes, but one of the things that, that you know, is developed from what I've talked about before is this notion of kind of there in the classic Christian vision of things, because God is being itself and existence itself. God is not a substance or essence like the human is a substance and essence, both of which need to participate in this larger category called being in order to be right. Sadly, that's what onto theology is, right? is that all of a sudden there is this bare category or platonic universal or, or form called being. And God, if God's going to be, has to be in it. And humans, if they're going to be, have to be in it, right? They all have to participate it, in it for, in order for it to be. Christianity revamps that. It says that circle of being is God himself. <laughs> God is being itself. Um, God is the infinite source in which being is fully um, perf- perfect. God is perfect. Let's put it that way. There isn't any addition or negation to which God is privy to because God is absolutely perfect. There isn't more or less with God because God is perfect, right? God is perfect. Um, perfection itself in any sense of the word. So you can't add to perfection or take away from it. Yeah, I think one of the ways that theologians and, and philosophers have discussed this is that there's no potential in God. That's right. In other words, everything is, is actual. Uh, and this gets us back to divine simplicity in yeah. the sense that it all goes together. <laughs> you know, I think that's one of the things maybe that is helpful for helping people uh, apprehend or at least appreciate what divine simplicity is addressing. And that is, you know, when we when we deny that God has parts— it implies, too, that we can't take one thing and leave the rest behind. So, you know, like when people say, I want, you know, when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, I like love and peace, but uh, goodness and meekness are on the shelf. I didn't take those. <laughs> it's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's a package deal. It's the blue plate special. You get them all <laughs> or you don't. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. You're, you're either... You're either, you know, enjoying the fruit of the spirit because of your uh, participation and your uh, in, in the life of Christ and your union with God through Him, or you're not. It's it's like like uh, you know what James says about the law. It's again, it's like it's not like you can pick and choose the laws. Uh, when you break one, you break them all That's because right. of divine simplicity. Everything goes together. Uh, so that's what is implied with divine simplicity. You get all of God or not. That's right. And so, I mean, one of the ways, and we've said this before, is basically because God is existence itself, being itself in its per, you know, infinite being, right, in its full realization. There is no shadow of turning from eternity to eternity. God is God. He's the self-existent one. This is what I am would, is basically saying. This is where we get our doctrine of aseity in, in theology, right? He is infinitely perfect in and of himself. He doesn't need something else in order to be fully what God is. So he, perf- he, he has no lack. He has no potential unrealized. He is the one in whom, in his inner Trinitarian life, as Chris just said, is completely realized, satisfied, and at rest, right? Eternal Sabbath, shalom, bliss. He thus gains nothing nor loses nothing, whether or not he creates. Creation is not adding something to perfection. It's not taking away from it. He has no need for the things he created. This doesn't mean he doesn't love it. It doesn't mean he doesn't do it out of the good pleasure of his will. It just means it's not realizing or determining him or conditioning him. 
It's a completely free act by God to which God can relate to it in a way where God can be fully present to it without resistance because nothing in creation can resist him. That's one way of thinking about it. Now, one of the ways that contemporary evangelical theology has departed from this is by psychologizing God through the language of relationship. So people will say things like, you have a personal relationship with God. And so then people will say, well, I have a personal relationship with my mother or with Glenn Sunshine. And I know that when I have a personal relationship with my mother or Glenn Sunshine, that when I say things to to them, I'm informing them about things that they don't already know. Yeah, (laughs) Or there's a a kind of give and take. I give something to God, God gives something to me. And this, this kind of language is a departure from classical Christianity. In fact, That's it's right. a kind of bringing God down to our level. It's a, it's a kind of, uh, well, it's a kind of idolatry, uh, you could say, or a, uh, a failure to apprehend or to appreciate uh, God's transcendent uh, status or uh, being. And then the question is, well, then how do I relate to such a God? Well, uh, the way you do that is through the the persons of the Trinity that have been extended to you, the Son and the Spirit. Those are the means by which uh, we have a sort of day-to-day apprehension and knowledge of God and and relationship with God. But that doesn't mean that we're introducing into God something that's changing him in some way. Yeah, that's right. And I think I think you hit hit it right. I mean, on the one hand, we think we tend to think today, you know, this kind of moral therapeutic deism. On one hand, God God is like the grand yoga teacher who's giving us, you know, advice and, and certain <laughs> yoga practices. I got a beef with yoga anyway. Sorry, I, I do. <laughs> no, no, no. That's good. I'm going to write a book called God, God is God and Yoga. You know. Um, but. <laughs> I, I think you'd, I think it'd sell a million copies, but the people who would buy it are all these, all these women who want God and yoga. Yeah. They, they want I mean, they, they, <laughs> they would look at me and say, basically, you're exactly why I do yoga. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 you know, the, but my, my point here is, is that, yeah, I mean, I, I, I get it. Now, let me, let me just say something in their defense, if I could, um, what no, they do, no. <laughs> no, but but I, but I need to say this: what they do. No, there get is no right, defense for yoga. <laughs> what they do get right through the wrong lens is the unconditionality of God's love for them. Because here here's the point: because because God isn't determined. God doesn't create because God needs something. Therefore, His creating, His unconditional giving is the ground and source of all that. But where they make a mistake is they turn that into something familiar rather than mysterious and I'll, I'll get I'll get to that point they make it something like a big therapy you know basically a big big psychologist you know in eternity resolving their you know lack of 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 human harmony in relationship to how they you know live their best life now and and so I think that's that's kind of where where it goes it, you're right it domesticates something that, that could be yep. could be fruit for a good theology and distorts it. Um, but one of the things is the flip side of the classical vision is that creation minus, uh, okay, God minus creation is not, it, it, it is still fully God. But creation minus God is nothing, Right. This is the classic Christian view. Creation doesn't have an essence in and of itself. It doesn't have its own ontology apart from its being granted and sustained and grounded continuously by the being that God is, right? So creation is not infinite being itself. It is thus not by its nature eternal, necessary, and underived. This is why I'm not a naturalist. This is why those people who say nature is a given, I say, no, it actually isn't because its essence is not necessary. Because it's not necessary, it therefore requires necessity to be what it is, and therefore you can't understand what it is apart from the source that gives it its being. So nature is not self-defining. It requires God to define it, right? So the guy who wrote us, I don't, what was his name? The naturalist. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I know I, the guy, Larry, Darwin, uh, um, Larry, yeah. um, 
you're not talking about the God of Christianity. <laughs> so whatever your right, issue right. is, you know, sorry, I didn't write your full treatise, but you know, sorry, we're not talking yeah. about the yeah. same thing. Yeah. You're talking about a God I too would reject. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, you, you just offended him by laughing because uh, that's right. Remember, sorry. Uh... <laughs> let, let me do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I, I do think that, you know, that particular matter of how do we relate, to say naturalists who we don't share uh, common ground with on some pretty fundamental matters can still be people that we work with maybe in tertiary, secondary matters uh, is maybe a good subject for another show. Uh, because yeah. anyone who say is involved with uh, trying to make a difference in the world is, is going to find himself or herself in a situation where somebody wants to sort of join arms with you, but is not on the same page with you on the most, most fundamental things. So that would be, that would be a good show for another day. But anyway, yeah, I just wanted yeah. to give a, give a nod to Larry that we recognize that Larry has some good things going for him, but, That's right. but even though we don't agree with him on a very well, fundamental level. Well, because level. he is a creature made in the image of God, um, we therefore don't reject in, in total what uh, he has to offer and say. And so because of that, we can find place. We won't make him the, the ground and center, but we would definitely find an inclusion for what is wise in what he says, and we'll kind of purge it and wean it from what isn't. <laughs> so, but that's what I do with my own thought all the time. So I'm not being on, you know, I'm lacking charity there. Um, so, okay, so if I can get to, I mean, there's a lot going on here, and I don't want to reiterate what we've talked about other shows, but let's get down to uh, the, the issue of analogy, okay? What is the classic view of analogy? Um, well, one of the things that is beautiful about the classical view is that whether it's liturgy, whether it's myth, whether it's metaphor or literal language, all of it is basically functioning on the same level in relationship to God. This is why the church is so robust with liturgical language, ritual language, symbolic language, all the way down to what we would consider very ordinary and everyday language. Why? Because all of it is still functioning on the same level in relationship to God, even though it may be on different levels in relationship to us. Um, so what you have going on here is because God is the infinite source of all things, therefore his goodness and beauty and all of the perfections that God is by nature is refracted within the whole of creation. But the whole of creation can't contain it. For example, I can't embody full goodness, and Glenn can't embody pure beauty, though, you know, maybe closer to it than I am, right? And Chris maybe can't embody full truth. So there, for the whole of creation has, has differing ways, limited ways, that it refracts something of its creator. But on the other hand, because it is only contingent, finite, and creaturely, all of the similarities that it would have in terms of good, beauty, and truth are limited, as Glenn just said, um, by the fact that we're contingent and creaturely. We're not the infinite source of all things. We're not goodness itself. Therefore, we are only a limited, finite, contingent refraction of it at our best, right? Now, now one of the things about that is that uh, you know, with that understanding, uh, we live in a world that speaks. Yeah. In other words, uh, all the time, and it's not merely our imaginations that are reading things into the world around us. Our imagination may actually be receiving messages uh, conveyed to uh, us uh, from the physical world. So, for example, yeah. you you brought up Glenn. Uh, the rabbis understood, understood that in some sense, the beard is a glory of the man. And so Glenn as did the church fathers is the most, is the most glorious of them all <laughs> or of, of us all. He, he has a but good I'm, beard, man. We have to admit <laughs> now related to this, I'm, I'm reading Owen Barfield's, um, uh, saving the appearances right now. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read it, but it's a really yeah, rich it. study yeah. on, on some of these matters. And one of the things that he, you know, gets into is, is how in medieval art, uh, there was not a particular set of sort of, uh, visual tropes that uh, radically distinguished 
um, spiritual realities or physical realities. So when you when you get into the 19th century or even the 18th century, when you wanted to when you, when you when you wanted to paint an angel, either it was a cherub or some kind of misty ephemeral thing. But if you look at you know paintings, uh, you know from you know the Middle Ages, particularly the High Middle Ages, <coughs> you'll see angels that look pretty much like everybody else, dressed the same way as everybody else. And the <laughs> only thing that kind of sets them apart are the wings on the on their back. But what what Barfield was drawing from this, or sort of uh, pointing out in in the course of his uh, writing, is uh, the the folks uh, who were painting these images in the past, they didn't see the world as sort of like just literal and symbolic, you know, in, in, in contradistinction to each other. They saw the whole world as symbolic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And consequently, uh, there was no need to sort of uh, set aside or set apart uh, with some sort of a, a, a ethereal uh, tone these right. angelic beings, uh, yeah. they, they were, you know, real in the same way we are real. They're dressed in the same way we are now. Now, one of the things I think it's worth thinking about is if we take that to heart, I think it, it addresses a number of things that we see in contemporary life. For example, uh, when people just, you know, uh, think of their clothing as expressing them. Yeah. They're losing touch with the symbolic power of clothing. Yeah. And the way that the that the clothing actually is speaking uh, to larger uh, realities or reflecting larger realities than just, you know, a person's taste. Yeah. So uh, if, if we really took it, if, if we took that seriously, if we really saw the world around us as as meaningful and speaking, uh, then I don't know if we I don't think we would dress the same way. Um, That's right. We, we wouldn't name our children the same way we do. So how do we name our children today? Well, that sounds nice. It, it's got a nice ring to it, you know, but we don't make any deeper connection. Or maybe maybe the best we can do is we name a child in honor of a family member. That's right. Uh, rather, rather than what we see in Scripture is sort of like, okay, this particular person seems to reflect this reality. So we're going right. to name him there, Jacob. There is, there is a naming, even if it is in, it, with, with kind of the significance of the symbolic significance, the, or maybe in other ways, the transcendent significance of genealogy, right? It's not just flat naturalism. It's the fact that these names bear a transcendent meaning in relation to, 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 to God and everything else. Um, this is what I mean by a metaphysics of naming, right? Um, that classical vision and, and, and the church as it moved with it with its own kind of uh, biblical understanding of the significance of names into a world in which um, naming uh, naming you know uh, naming things and and uh, metaphysics were very deeply connected. Um, so the church really carved out a way. I mean that that really developed this in a in, in a much richer sense. So so let me kind of give some examples because I think you're you're on to some. Uh huh. Go ahead. Before you go there, I want to go back to this. Is, I said there was two things that came to mind earlier. I was going to hold off on one. This is uh-huh. it. Um, <laughs> we the, Chris was talking earlier about our concept in our society that words have no fixed meaning that language is just a social construct expressing power relationships and things yeah. like that. There's nothing intrinsic about language. Um, just on a biblical level, you've got to really question that because Jesus is described as the logos, the word. And thus, from God's perspective, words very definitely have meaning. Now, the divine word and the human word, divine word in the sense of Christ and the human word, words that we use are obviously in a different order. They're totally different things in many respects, but not in all, because words do, in fact, have meaning. And this symbolic approach to words and to naming and things like that is the thing that ties them together. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that goes right. I mean, look at Genesis. Let there be. And then the unfolding, let there be this kind, and then said, Adam, give names to them, right? The reality and the naming correspond. 
right? <laughs> it isn't arbitrary. It's that these things have a certain nature and kind to which Adam is able to have an antenna for as he participates in, in that kind of meaning context. Um, it's not social construct, deta- only uh, issues of power. But see, the whole notion of power and imposition of meaning and language um, it comes from ontotheology and this break from Christianity. Because the classic Christian vision of language is such that that the, that, that creatures only um, only manifest a, a finite similarity to the infinite. But as Glenn said, it is exhausted by the fact that the infinite outruns the finite. So classic Christian vision of transcendence and imminence. What do I mean by that? God's distance and familiarity to things is that when we're made in the image of God, we have a similarity. We have some similarity to our creator. God is being itself. We have creaturely being. But because God is being itself and we have it only because of the donation and gift and sustenance of it by participating in God as being itself, participating as a creature in what he has by nature, we have by gift, we are not being itself. We only have it sustained by our share in it by the gift of God. And because of that, when we say creaturely being, it is an analogy of divine being, but it's not the same thing. God is being. We participate in a creaturely share in it. Chris is good, but he's not goodness itself. Jesus himself will question the the person coming up to him. Why do you call me good? Only God is goodness itself, right? Um, He's he's questioning to to see whether he knows him as the son of God versus just a human agent. But but here is Chris is good, but Chris is not goodness itself, right? So any good that Chris has comes from some goodness to which Chris participates in. So when we name God good, We only have a creaturely understanding of what that means, but we know that we only get that goodness because we're not the source of it, but God is. So we can say God is good, but whenever we say God is good, we always are qualified by the fact that God is not good in the same way that that, that Chris is good. God is goodness itself perfectly. Chris has a finite creaturely share in it, limited, distorted by sin, redeemed in Christ. Go ahead, Chris. So, uh, yeah, we should wrap things up, but I wanted to just point out a couple of things related to the issue of language and what we're talking about. When we look at, you know, the beginning of uh, chapter one in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So there's no space in the same sense that there is space when it comes to, say, me and my words and God and his word. Me and my words, uh, there is a space, and that space uh, is the space in which lying occurs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. But when, but when, when we, when we, what we see there in the opening of John is uh, the word is distinct, but the word is at the same time. So it both is distinct and is, which means that what God says actually occurs. There's no. There's no ontological distance in the sense yeah. of what comes to be. So let there be light and there's light, right? Yeah. So what God says is, the, is so. God cannot lie. Why can't yeah. God lie? Because whatever God says is so. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. It, it goes together. And uh, then when we have Adam naming the creatures, uh, he doesn't name them in, the, in a way that uh, modern people name things arbitrarily because he likes the sound of it or whatever. Uh, we can see that there is a logic to his naming when he sees Eve or he says that your name is going to be Eve because you are going to be the mother of all the living. All living. Uh, so there, yep, so there's, a, there's a naming that's based on a prior naming or a prior word, which is God's word, that uh, Eve is made to uh, be the means through which uh, you know, the rest of the human race comes into being. So anyway. Well, there's a correspondence there, which I think is very significant 
there's a correspondence, whatever, whatever you hold to theoretically, there's a correspondence between human naming and and the the discerning of the lo- the, the 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 meaning that the logos inherently puts within the order of things. Yep, and I think that's why we can uh, say that things are well named or misnamed. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I think that we should probably wrap things up on that note. Yeah, it's been great to have you with us on the Theology Podcast. Uh, we appreciate your ongoing interest and support. There are a lot of people who give to us on a regular basis, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, those gifts make it possible for us to produce the show. They pay the bills. We don't take any money from this. Um, <laughs> we do this just because we like talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, we only but got to point same- one today. So. <laughs> <laughs> See what I mean about liking to talk? <laughs> so, so we like to talk, and uh, we're glad that there are people who like to listen and talk back sometimes. <laughs> so thank you for all you've done to help make this show uh, uh, what it is. And with that, uh, just one last reminder, if you're in the Huntsville, Alabama area on January 20th, 2022, go to Fractal Brewing at 730 for a semi-live podcast. And you can enjoy uh, seeing very large heads of Glenn and Tom and then me (laughs) as a regular person. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.